0: Hey, hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. Hope you're staying fit and healthy and happy and having a great time, whether you're secluded at home or wandering free when you're listening to this. I hope you're doing well. And I appreciate all of you who have become recent listeners and for all the growth we're seeing in the podcast these days, I really appreciate it. If you're new here or if you've been listening for a while, I would love it if you could do me a favor right now Pause this and leave a review on iTunes, Tommorcus.com slash iTunes, or whatever device or player you're using. Leave a review for In the Trenches right now. All right, and if you can come back around to that, maybe after this episode, that's fair too. But I'm really trying to get us over 50 reviews on iTunes. I've been along around so long, I've just never really pressed this. And we're at 48 reviews, five-star reviews, it looks like, or 47 five-star reviews and one two-star review. That's a bummer. But really trying to get over that 50-star 55-star mark, so let's make it happen if you can. Thank you in advance for your support. And special shout-out to Diane, who's already left her five-star review. Quote, Tom has the knowledge and experience to address topics that are popular and interesting. He invites guests who are experts in their areas so that listeners get valuable and useful information that they can apply in their own businesses. He has a knack for asking great questions to get the best information from guests, including Danny Annie in episode 221. Tom creates conversations that flow and keeps the listener engaged throughout the broadcast. Thank you, Diane. Really appreciate the shout out and the five-star review. Now, back to Daniel Scrivener, today's guest. As I mentioned, Daniel's the CEO of Flow, which is project management software. And that's what we kind of focused on a little bit today and his path to that, how he became the CEO. And why that's interesting because his background is in design. And you don't find many designer to CEO type stories. Uh, A lot of times I think it's engineers, developers, things like that. So it's interesting to see his design perspective on this. Somebody who worked at Apple, who worked at Square, and who's now growing Flow. And to take his accrued knowledge in those different spaces where he's done really, really well, and how he's applied that to his new company, that's kind of where this conversation goes. So we dive into a bunch of different topics from design to systems and processes around creative thinking and creativity in general. Like how do you How do you become a creative team and solve creative and challenging problems? And we also cover Daniel's insights and mindset when it came to what he did and why he did it, because he took some unexpected career paths to get where he is today. So, lots of great insights. I can't really extract just one great takeaway like I can typically do or sometimes do with conversations. There's just a lot of really solid, good stuff. And I'd love to hear from you guys. If you enjoyed today's conversation, the flow of the conversation, or you have requests for specific guests we should have on, and you want us to dive more into this kind of style, let me know. Shoot me an email at tom at tomworkis.com. Okay, enough of that. Without further ado, let's get to today's conversation. So Daniel, where I want to start is at the backstory, maybe the backstory of the backstory before we get to flow and all that great stuff. Uh, the path through to flow through Square. And this like this mythical place of uh, tech companies and your journey there. What got you started and uh, moving that direction?
1: Yeah, so thanks for having me on, Tom. Um, I'm super excited to be here. So yeah, for a little bit of background on on myself, um, I've had a super unconventional kind of journey to where I am today. And when I try to describe it to people, I think people get lost or get get a little bit confused. And so you know, my background is I um, you know the kind of short version is. Stumbled into design. Uh, growing up, I was never like an artistic person. In fact, my least favorite class in high school, uh, or just ever, was was art. I just had I don't know for whatever reason that was. Ne- I never connected with uh, design, in kind of that sense, when I finally when it clicked for me was uh, one summer when I was in high school. I ended up doing a uh, a coding course, basically learning how you put websites together with HTML. Because back then, it was just HTML, no CSS, no JavaScript, none of that. And uh, and I really enjoyed that class and kind of fell in love with the, the fact that I now had this tool set, which I think a lot of people are discovering today by uh, kind of becoming programmers or going to boot camp. Is you suddenly have this superpower where you could take something in your mind, you could piece it together, and you could share it with other people. And that for me was a big revelation. But the next thing that I immediately stumbled onto was oh, God, everything I make looks awful. How <laughs> do I make it up to the bar that I would like? And so, that was my weird foray into uh, design, which I think uh, for me is the intersection of solving really difficult problems uh, mixed with trying to do it in an artful twist where ideally the way you execute it, the way you piece it together just has some some kind of magical qualities with it, which sounds a little weird, but I think that's kind of loosely how I think about it in my mind.
0: Did you have uh, an art background or anything like that?
1: No, not at all. And my parents could not have been further apart from that. My dad was a, mathematician that worked for DARPA. My mom was a teacher. So I grew up in a nerdy house, but not an
0: artistic (laughs) house in any sense. So when you kind of came at it, you came at it from what's interesting, I think, about that is, yes, the desire for it maybe to look better, but more from almost an engineering mindset of like, how do we make it so it's more user-friendly, more of a user interface? It almost sounds like a little bit.
1: Yeah. It was like, once you have the functionality there or kind of the raw content, then it's just struggling with that gap between here's where it's at now, here's where I would like for it to be. How the heck do I kind of traverse that and figure out how to get it to feel like that, look like that, sound like that?
0: And how, so what was that, that like for you then? Where, what did that, where did that path lead? Yeah, so that path led to, so that was my stumbling
1: into it. Then, you know, the kind of short story was um, I honestly just fell in love with it kind of at that moment where I realized that it was at that intersection. And so, um, you know, left high school, went to college. I was doing the design the whole time, and for me, I just I I was willing to do whatever it took to just get work. And so, what's one one thing that's been funny for me over the last you know fifteen years as I've been doing this is I get a lot of people that will reach out are interested in my background interested in how I got started. And I think and so they'll send me an email, and you know, reading between the lines, I think what a lot of people look for is like, what's that silver bullet answer? Like, how do I <laughs> how do I get that job at Apple? And uh, the answer I give back, I think, is not super satisfying. Which is, here's what you know. Here's what I did. Here's what worked for me. Like, do anything, uh, do, you know, do anything that it takes in order to get people to hire you. So initially, I would do design work for free just so I would build up portfolio work. Then I started doing design work that I got paid, and I got paid almost nothing, but I was getting paid. Then you know, you start to have a portfolio, and you can land better clients. And so that was really my trajectory is just kind of scaffolding up. Uh, from you know being a little less scrappy over over time and getting to work for better and better clients, and then um, you know honestly, like four years in, um, I had a, a tipping point where um, Apple ended up reaching out to me. Uh, initially, no joke, I thought it was a. Um, I had to like check the URL, to check the email to make sure that it was someone from Apple that was interested in my design work, and um, they ended up reaching out, and so that kind of launched me off into the next trajectory of my career, but it started out super, super scrappy.
0: And I, I love that story. So let's just zoom in on that for a second because sure. it's like I think a lot of people like might hear that, but and it sounds good at story form, but then you're like, oh, but the reality of it is I'd have to work for free. And it's like, yeah, man, a lot of people I've interviewed it's apprenticeship. I i I did it. That's how I got started. It was like yeah. easiest path was just like, let me just do something. Let's get maybe get a testimonial out of it or something like that. And then some referrals and then boom one totally. thing after another i mean you don't work for free forever but you choose no, and it's getting in those reps yes exactly so you did that you were strategic with that and you were doing this on your own so you were kind of freelancing at the time
1: yeah totally on my own and so you know part of the like what led to that tipping point for me was you know i started working for better and better clients and then i had this moment where the path forward was pretty clear and for me it was i could either you know transfer with the um the kind of college work that I'd been doing, and go to a four-year university, uh, which of course, you know, in my family, just with my background, that was like, that's what you do—you <laughs> go and you and you do that. And uh, for me, that just didn't seem that interesting. And so, the other choice I ended up taking was, why don't I drop out of school and try it on my own for six months? You know, quit my job that I had at the time and try going full-time in a design for six months. Um, and so that's what I ended up doing. It was super painful because I was the designer, I was the producer, I was, uh, you know, accountant, I, I did everything. So you kind of really learn, I think, what it looks like to not just uh, do design as a practice, but to start to build it up as a business. Um, yeah. And that ended up, you know, if I hadn't just taken that leap, and this is, uh, I think this has been a, a gem that I've definitely carried forward with me in my life is just don't be afraid to take that leap into, what scares you but what seems like the most exciting next step you can take because every time i've done that sure it's been uh, it's been trying in, in a lot of senses but i've always been rewarded for doing that
0: were you in were you in college then and you and you dropped out technically yeah okay you're a, you're a technical dropout story literal dropout. Literal, yeah, dropout literal dropout so what was the social pressure like or the just the pressure of that too because there's got to be a ton of backlash cuz then like all your friends are like well, why is he dropping out like you know, the people who want to kind of keep you around and stuff like that, even at, you know, and they mean, maybe even mean well and all that stuff. But you realize all the pressure that can come from all different sorts. People think they're looking out for you, want you to do what's best, want to keep you safe or whatever. it has got to be an extreme amount of pressure from all sides. So what's that like to handle?
1: Yeah, was it I mean, it was, a, it was a lot of pressure. I think, um it, to to be super honest, I think there was no one that uh, was more uncomfortable with it than than me. Because the thing that I kept parroting back in my mind is, well, well, you know, and I would tell myself two things, and this has always been a little bit helpful. It's almost like, um, yeah, positive voice and kind of a voice that's maybe a little bit more questioning what's going on. But the, the positive voice, you know, in my head was um, like, if this doesn't work well, it's just six months. You know, you've I've tried to time box it to six months. You can always recover. It's always fine. You'll be glad that you tried it. So I kind of say all of those things to myself. But the negative voice definitely was was there, and it was saying stuff like. You're going to regret this. Now you're going to be further behind. You're going to be older when you graduate. You're never going to have this college degree. Maybe it'll work out for a short period of time, but what if you're in your 30s and your 40s, and all of a sudden you really wish you had a college degree? And you know, I've—it's honestly, it did. That wasn't just a like months-long thing. That was something I think I struggled with for the first five, ten years of my career. Was just wondering if that was the right call. But what I ultimately ended up. I'm landing on over enough time. And part of this was, you know, I think design like engineering, honestly, in an ideal world would be taught through apprenticeship because I do not think there's... I think there's very limited value, and I'm sure I'll get beat up for this by some people, but I think there's very limited value in going to a design school to get a design degree. Because what ends up happening is you do a bunch of... uh it's like fake work, you know. It's you feel like you're doing real work, but you have none of the constraints, none of the pressures, none of the different voices to reconcile, you know, none of the like uh, this person said this, this person said this. How do I triangulate? So it's it's designed in a vacuum, and there is that will never apply once you actually get out of that. And so I think something that's been really fascinating for me is, you know, as I've progressed in my career, is getting to work with people that have a master's in fine arts. And seeing that, uh, you know, while a lot of them are very are very competent and they really know the technical side of design, I think there's a super hard ceiling on what they're able to accomplish because they don't have any of those soft skills and they just have less reps of dealing with the real world pressures of trying to do good work.
0: Yeah. Oh man. I mean, I completely. It's it's fascinating because you could also swap that out. I mean, <clears throat> business school, <clears throat> you know, or whatever it is. And I, you know, again, no, I don't. I don't know. I haven't been. But I just imagine that, like, there's there's uh, the utility of the real world feedback. Nothing beats it. Doesn't matter how much I read and how much I think about something, the the what I get from the feedback of even just ten people is worth so much more. And I do, and that that is without uh, knocking any of the fundamentals or anything like that. Still learning, still. Honing your craft, still studying. I'm sure you still studied and did your own thing as you were doing what you were doing and constantly learning. Totally. Probably till, totally. to this day.
1: Just self learning. Yeah. And I think, and that's always been for me where I like, I love that. And I grew up in a house where we would, um, you know, make trips to go to the library. And that was like a fun, awesome thing we did as a family growing up. And so for me, I w- I've just been fortunate that I think whenever I, I am intrigued by something, want to learn more about something, want to get better at something, I I am immediately just like, great, I'll just find books, I'll find things online, I'll find people to talk to and I'll teach myself that. And I think that if I had taken that approach and I didn't have that muscle and I didn't have that reflex of like anytime I get uncomfortable, don't worry, like you can learn this, you can you can figure this out. There's plenty of information out there. You know, and I think just two quick notes on what you said, like one of my uh, favorite quotes recently, specifically around kind of business and business school, is "there is no skill called business," and I think that's true because business is an amalgamation of a lot of soft skills and a lot of different technical things. But you don't go and learn business, and I think that's you know one thing that I've definitely learned over the last year plus leading Flow is uh, even if you do learn business, and I've spent you know I've also been a little weird, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point, but. Some of my background early on was I was always interested in design, business, and investing. And those things have continued to be things I've figured out how to weave together and, and uh, make a part of my life um, today. But so I've always been fascinated by business. But no matter how much you read, how much you learn, it's a totally different thing when you're actually in the trenches figuring it out. And you've got a you know, you've, you're dealing with, a, with a, uh, a very specific problem, a very specific set of people, a very specific marketplace. And yeah, there's just nothing to prepare you for that. It's a very different, I think.
0: No. And now, and you said you kind of carried a little bit of that weight around for a bit, but you got through it, obviously. And, and now it's so far in the past. It's like, well, you're at the point. Well, no, I wouldn't say it's funny. I think some people develop a skill where they become unemployable a little bit. Like I, or I kind of felt like I got that now. I've gotten there where I'm like, sure. I don't think anyone can hire me for what I can just go produce on my own, for instance. Like it wouldn't, I don't know, maybe somewhere. But like um, it's, but also like the strange set of skills I now have, um, is also kind of a bizarre thing. Again, it's the kind of stuff you can only learn on the ground doing it. And you kind of worked your way up the ranks, so to speak. But you made some kind of interesting. You've you've been through some interesting companies, and now, of course, with what you're doing, flow. So talk to me a little bit of, of some of that kind of movement through and that path to to flow.
1: Yeah. So um, you know. Uh... Had the super scrappy start to my career. Uh, then ended up working for an advertising agency in LA for a little bit. That ended up, in some sense, kind of springboarding me a little bit to, um, to Apple. And at that point is when I moved from Southern California to San Francisco. And uh, I was at Apple for three and a half years. And just really quickly on that, I think I was also I've been incredibly fortunate. And yeah, I obviously worked my, I worked my ass off. Still, <laughs> so I'm working my, my ass off. That's a skill I think you have to learn when you're. Uh, taking, you know, the route that, that if you're deciding to do something that's not common, you're going to need to work your ass off a lot of the time. So I've definitely have that skill, but I've also been very fortunate. And one thing um, that I've been, you know, yeah, just continue to think back on, continue to reflect on. It continues to be something I feel like I learn even more from over time. Is just my time at Apple because what I think that helped me do is with no formal design training and learning this on my own early on. You know, you don't necessarily learn the best ways of approaching problems. You just learn what works for you. And I think what I learned in that transition of going to Apple and working around the best designers in the world is uh, one, Apple is incredible at doing repeatably excellent design. And I think that repeatably and excellent is like an incredible and very difficult combination because what I found since is I think it's actually relatively easy to do great design in one off contexts. It's really, really, really hard as a company to do launch after launch after launch after launch, and have all of them be something where you're, yeah, just finding something new to offer, you're polishing and refining things you've done in the past, and you're just evolving everything that you're um, able to do and so uh, that was an incredible experience at apple and um, but I ultimately ended up having this moment, kind of three and a half years in, where Sort of rewind a little bit. Uh, when I started at Apple, obviously I was like, "Wow, I am. This is a place I had hoped to be someday." And now I'm, I'm get the chance or get the opportunity to have this early on in my career. Um, and it was in, in like the steepest but most fulfilling learning curve for those three and a half years. But I suddenly had this moment three and a half years in where um, I don't even know. I can't even tell you like the situation or the context. But it suddenly just hit me like. I figured it out. Like I kind of know what to do now, and it's no longer as challenging. The learning curve's not as steep. And I think uh, you know, as amazing as working at uh, a company like Apple is, once you learn that formula of how to be successful there, how to design in the Apple way, it's you know, kind of nailed it. And so for me, I start I start getting uncomfortable when I start getting comfortable. So if there's something that I'm just like feeling too easy, I get a little disinterested. And so mm-hmm. I had that moment was wasn't sure what to do. Um, but I started looking around and at that point in time, another thing too, that I think is a little hard for some people to imagine today is, um, today, all the best people I know have worked at startups or work at startups and startups play a much bigger role than they did 10, 15 years ago. At that point in time, this was, yeah, 10 plus years ago now, um... It was not at all common for people, for the best people to work at startups. And it definitely wasn't common for people to leave companies like Apple to go and work at startups. But I, for whatever reason, was really drawn to Square. And what I saw in Square at the time was they were super design driven. So it immediately clicked for me there. Uh, I didn't know much about Jack Dorsey or the team at the time, but everyone I interacted with when I was interviewing and meeting some of the team, I was just blown away by. Um, and then the other thing was they were solving a, like I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't trying to like underwrite the business and see if the business made sense. But what really helped me get comfortable with it was they were making revenue from day one. They were providing an essential services to businesses. And I've just always really enjoyed the uh, super valuable, lucrative business. Not the most fun, expressive, interesting design work in the world. But like when you can bring those things together and deliver something that's amazing, but it still is super functional and it's a hardworking tool, I think you've got something really special.
0: I love that. I mean, yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense too in, in that intersection. So, how long were you with Square then doing this? Suit? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I stayed at Square for five and a half years, uh, mm-hmm. basically from the time the company was around 50 until uh, about six months after we ended up IPOing. Um, and so, it was in a lot of ways, you know, still thinking back because I obviously have friends now that have worked at Airbnb for five plus years or worked at, you know, Pinterest for five plus years. And I think I've realized that it's. I also got very lucky there, and that Square was an absolute outlier to go from super early team all the way through successful IPO. You know, they're still growing like crazy and doing really well. But it was a really, really, really special time to be at the company. I think through those years, and what I got to do when I was there was take everything that I learned at at um, at, at Apple, and eventually, about six months in, my role changed. I ended up um, becoming Creative director, and then the head of design at the company. I was reporting into Jack Dorsey. I ended up building the design team from four to forty, and making it a multidisciplinary team, a little bit like I saw, and I got to be a part of at Apple, where we had, you know, a video team, we had a graphic design and packaging team, we had a web team, we had product teams, Um, and so I got to, you know, take uh, try try to take some of that magic at Apple and and recreate that at Square, Um, and yeah, it was just it was. It's an amazing, amazing opportunity.
0: Yeah, I want to zoom in on that, like in terms of also kind of like the lessons, um, kind of yeah. creative and hard, hard lessons. Um, like that idea, like you said, after about three years, it sounds like almost like kind of reaching like a level of like kind of mastery in the subject, or or at least real, real good confidence. And I, I kind of feel the same way. Like kind of get once I, hit, I get something, I'm like kind of immediately bored Got and want to go to next the next level. Gotta find the next question. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you took something from that, and then I like how you just you went and applied it somewhere else. We're able to build on that structurally. You just mentioned, kind of, you gave an overview of that. What were some of the other insights, I guess you could say, that you took away from that? Maybe you implemented with Square and maybe that you've since implemented at Flow. Like uh, design and or business-related, structural, process-related.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe to try to pull out a couple stories that I still uh, use heavily or come back to. I think one, one thing that I got to do when we were at Apple is uh, work on a project where um, we were basically recreating the Apple online store, but in app form. Because at that point in time, they only had... You, know, you can go to apple.com, you could uh, put together a, a Mac or order, but they didn't have any mobile apps where you could be able to do that. And so we were responsible for translating that, which obviously is the like financial workhorse of Apple. And so one of the things that we started with was to build a Mac flow because not only is that super profitable for them, it's also... In, uh, a really, really, really complicated, intricate experience. Like if you're thinking about something like ordering an iPhone, it's very simple. You're like, what model do you want? What size do you want? What color do you want? Do you want a couple of accessories? You're done. If it's a Mac, it's much more blown out than that. And so we got to work on that project, and it was uh, it was super interesting because obviously, uh, you know, we were not on that Apple online store team, so we got to we got to take that, uh, kind of apply an outsider's perspective and think about what to change. But one thing that I thought was fascinating is, um, and Apple was really, really, really good at this, and this is something I see startups and companies get wrong all the time, which is you know is just this, I think for a lot of companies, and I know a lot of this just comes from limited resources, limited money, limited time. but they you know what the, the, the incorrect thing I, I see a lot of people do um, and that I try to help people think through in, in a better way is. I aspire to, do, to have a product like Apple. So I'm going to just hire great people. But then I, you know, I got to get this done really quickly. So we don't have a lot of time. So we just need to like try to do this in 6 weeks or try to do this in 8 weeks. And one thing that was amazing at Apple is there would always be a period at the beginning of every project. And it was extended. It would be like 1 month, 2 months, 3 months, where it was open exploration. We weren't on a hard timeline. We were kind of in this like blue sea territory and we really got to explore and blow things up. And what I found from that is I called it um, like uh, useful in efficiency. because obviously, if you were looking at that from like someone trying to optimize it, you'd be like, well, here it is. I see these three months at the beginning. What got done? I'm just going to chop those out. But that was where all the magic happened because once you get a chance to explore a bunch of different directions, then you can move really quickly. And so, just uh, one little anecdote there was. Um, you know we had was just like a, I think one thing I learned at Apple, especially doing that project, was that people use flows and tools in ways you don't expect, and it really helps to gut check it. And so one thing that we ended up doing is, you know, I said we were working on that, build a Mac flow. And um, we you know had some ideas about what to do, but we decided to do user testing. And so what we uh, ended up assembling was people who had just gone through the you know kind of assemble or build a Mac flow and had purchased a Mac. We brought a handful of them in and interviewed them and talked. And really, it wasn't even showing them UI. It was like, how did that go? What were you looking for? What did you get stuck on? And then we took uh, a group of people that were interested and wanted to build a Mac, but hadn't gone through that flow. And we, we tried to pull insights from both of them. And so it's like gut testing it and, and t- yeah, looking at it from both sides. But one thing that was super interesting is there was a use case we did not anticipate that ended up being something that was like probably 30% of people ended up doing, which was they would go on to apple.com, they'd build a Mac, and then they'd print out the version of the Mac and take it into a retail store. And that was not something we had ever thought of. So obviously, the idea was like, we just want to help you get through this flow as quickly as possible. We want to do the right business things. Uh, But what people ended up saying is like, I'm about to make a multi-thousand dollar purchase. I don't want to do that online. I want to walk in. I want to feel this thing. I want somebody to talk to me about the Mac that I'm about to purchase and help me set it up. And so something like that was just incredible because that ended up changing the trajectory of what we built just by going and talking to people and seeing what kind of unexpected ways uh, would they use this that maybe we couldn't anticipate.
0: And, and, to, and to, when you say you you changed the trajectory, as in like, so then like, pragmatically speaking, you were like, okay, well, let's design this with that in mind, like make it so it's printout friendly kind of thing. Design. Yeah, you can save a
1: PDF, yep. you can email this to yourself. Um, you know, even
0: thinking about stuff like it's funny how simple the solution is once you know what people want, right? It's kind of interesting that that way.
1: Well, totally, and I think it it just brings you insights like that. I think one one thing that is so funny is, yeah, when you're designing or working on a problem, you can just get so myopically close to it that you forget any of the like, you know. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's people that are just trying, you know, that are, are like it's these squishy, hard to understand things. You know, called people that you're trying to solve for. And so, something like this, as soon as you understand the incentives and the emotion, you know, the kind of emotions that are going through somebody, it gives you just a way better, more grounded sense of how to approach it. And so, even just knowing, like, wow, of course that makes sense. You're about to make a massive purchase for a lot of people purchasing something like I still remember when I purchased my first Apple and I was like, whoo, this is here it goes. Like, I feel like I'm about to purchase a car. And you know the majority of consumers have that experience, and so as soon as you think about that, you start just approaching it in a different way, which is helpful.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think was fascinating that, that idea, like having that like um, that space to be creative and to figure out things, like to really work through problems that's like deeply, like at a deep level, where where there is action being taken, even if it doesn't seem like progress, because it's like foundational. Sure. Um, when you have limited resources, is there something you can do? Did you, you know, I, I wonder, like, can small teams apply that? Can an individual apply that um, in some way, shape, or form? Maybe you've never worked at that level in that re- regard, but no, I, yeah, no, I definitely have. I mean, I
1: think in my mind, it's more just like if you can't have so at Apple, you know, we got to have the luxury of we could have five, ten, fifteen, twenty, even more than that people that were basically tinkering and exploring and. Just looking at wildly different approaches to take on something for you know a prolonged period. If you are an individual and I've applied this myself, like you can still do that. And so in my mind, it's just the before I think when most people think about something, you know, especially if they're a linear thinker, they're just like point A, uh, you know that's where I am now. point B is this is what I want to have. How do I get there as quickly as possible? And I think what I uh, the way I've tried to reframe that for people and try to think about myself is, uh, my goal is to is to you know I want to bias for coming up like having something at the end of this that is um, insightful, different, unique, ownable. And so as soon as you start thinking about things in those terms, none of that's linear. And what it's going to take to get there is really you need to just build in time up front. And if you don't have the budget to have a team tinker, then at the very least give yourself say book off two to three days of your time. And spend a day going through a bunch of different, you know, related things that you can draw inspiration from and build a reference library. Spend a day sketching or writing or whatever comes most natural to you and how you think and just jotting down notes. And so, you know, even on a lot of personal projects, I do that all the time. I've got my backpack is often, you know, my wife can tell you this because it's all over the house too. But like for me, sketching and writing down notes and Uh, Writing down ideas or tools to use. Like, that is how I think best. I don't think best when I'm typing. I don't think best when I'm just, I don't know, looking at stuff online. Like, I need to have that physical proxy. And so I would just encourage people, like, you don't need to spend a bunch of time and money on it, but it's just this idea of uh, doing this, like, wide open ended exploration at the front before you narrow it down. And the way I've kind of talked about it with people is it's almost like an hourglass, but just the bottom portion of an hourglass. You basically want to start off your projects. Going as wide as possible and looking at all the possible ways you could approach this. Th- through that, you'll you'll triangulate. You'll be like, oh, I like this idea and this idea and this approach and this approach and this approach. You take the best of those things, you remix that, re- and you make it your own. And then you can start moving forward and get to an interesting destination. But you can't get there without that time.
0: Do you think there are people that can you know? Do you think there are trustworthy like agencies that can help with that that process and freelancers like people? If somebody's listening to this, is like, well, I'm not really design oriented like yeah even if i give myself the space i might not be able to produce that but maybe i do have a vision how do i get the right people on board you know i guess i wonder what what are your thoughts on that to- totally and even if you're a C- you know if you're a ceo
1: and let's say you're not so you're not like in the context i'm talking about i'm obviously thinking of i'm producing something so it's an mm-hmm. app it's an identity it's a website it's something like that so it's something visual but if you are a ceo then you just you know take that same principle and just apply it in the way that makes sense to you. And so, for an example of that, would be like, um, yeah, I'll give you a tangible example. Like one thing that we've done over the last two months is redid our pricing, our pricing and plans altogether. On the surface, it sounds super boring. I happen to find it really fascinating. It also gave me the chance to employ one of my one of the favorite books I've read over the last couple of years is uh, Confessions of a Pricing Man or The Confessions of the Pricing Man. I can't. <laughs> it's one of those. But if you type in Confessions of a Pricing Man in Amazon, you'll find it. And what that book was for me was just this wow, aha moment that prices aren't just like, do I want to have this be a full dollar or 99 cents? And do I want, you know, do I want two price points or three price points? Pricing is way, way, way more nuanced than that. And so even with something like pricing, you know, I could go and look up. Uh, Harvard Business Review articles of you know pricing case studies and see how that looks. I can go and look up like confessions of a pricing man. If you type that into Google, you'll find people that have notes about it online. You know, you can go and look at competitors or other companies that aren't maybe aren't even tangentially related. Like one thing I looked at: what is how does Tesla price their um, price their cars? You know, how does uh, what does Apple do? Because I think Apple has you know they definitely use pricing psychology, whether you realize it or not. And so you can still build in that thing where for me, it's just this idea that rather than starting with this two-dimensional thing you have in your head, flesh it out and make sure you understand it three-dimensionally. Have a constellation of things that you can draw on and draw inspiration from to make it your own. So you can definitely... There's ways you can apply it. It's just, uh, it's just that principle.
0: So if, since we're talking about that example, what was the before and the after snapshot of this, of this, this process for you guys?
1: Yeah. So our before prices... Uh, so there's a, there's a bunch of things that happen for us. So uh, you know, the, what I'm referring to specifically is we have two versions of our product that have never been super clear that we've spent a bunch of time clarifying, which is we have a single version player of Flow that we call Flow Solo that we're investing a lot of time and energy into making better. Um, and that's kind of a hobby at this point, even though we have a lot of customers that use it in that, in that fashion today. It's just not ideal. Uh, but our main business you know our bread and butter is uh, what we call internally flow for teams and so it's basically the multiplayer version it's when you have two or more people uh, using flow so we you know we uh, created separate plans for both with uh, solo we have uh, we're working towards a free tier then our goal there was basically to pack it with features and make it something that I would think of and be willing to pay for if I was someone that cared about productivity and so in this example I'm just thinking about myself like I've paid for apps like Things and and to doist um, and I get the value of it. And so if, if we have a customer that understands the value of a productivity app, but that's who we're gonna market and sell to. And so we've got a $2.99 and a $4.99 price. So basically if you pay annually it's two ninety nine a month. you pay monthly, it's four ninety nine a month. And so it's definitely premium when you look out across that. But that's another thing that I have a personal preference to and I think makes a lot of sense in flow is to be the premium priced product in the marketplace. And so for me, it's this like, I want to build an incredible user experience um, and incredible brand and, and product to back that up. But I'd always rather be competing for people that for fewer customers that will pay more than more customers that basically want to pay as close to zero as possible. So that's the flow solo side. On the flow for team side, we went from two plans to three, but there was a lot of other changes that happened. So uh, the two plans we had before, a couple things that were weird about them. One price point was five ninety nine and I think the other one was twelve ninety nine so there's a huge gap between those two prices um, and just historically, you know we've had about sixty percent of our customers on that higher price plan, and so it wasn't like that wasn't working, but definitely, in my mind, even just going to the pricing page, it felt really bizarre to kind of force people to choose between those um, and then the other so that was one thing the other thing was I don't think we did a great job like underneath each of those tiers of really thinking through like what should we put in a basic plan, and what shouldn't we? What should we put in a plus plan, uh, which is our new you know kind of middle tier plan to make it appealing for people to move up there? And so in my mind, it was just how do we align incentives so that if people want to pay less, they get a basic version of the product, but there's clear reasons to move up tiers. And that didn't exist before. It was super mushy and hard to understand. And so we moved from two tiers to three. Um, And then the other thing we do, which is not common, I'm not aware of any other company that does it. It's a little bit of an experiment for us, but I think it makes a lot of sense uh, across a lot of different dimensions. Is you know, if you look at most SaaS tools and you look at how they price something monthly versus annually, most people are, I think, in in their mind, they're like, "Oh, I want to make annual appealing, but I don't want to make it that appealing. Like, I still want to make as much money as possible anytime someone wants to pay annually." and I think that's a little bit misguided. what the way that I think about it that we think about it at flow is um, annual for us is super uh, is like the best thing we could possibly get as a company. It's super predictable revenue. We know we've got that customer for at least twelve months. we see hot we see less churn, we see more expansion like it's just all the uh, all the drivers are better with somebody that's on an annual plan. and so what we ended up doing is do a tiered discount so if you so basically what that means is the higher up the tiers you go the more the higher the discount is and the idea there is we want to make it more appealing for you to go up but again this isn't common and so the way it works today is on our lowest plan i think you get a 22% discount on the middle plan you get a 33% discount on the highest plan you get a 44% discount so it's basically 2 months 3 months and 5 months free out of the year and the idea there at least the hypothesis is well we will make it uh super attractive for people to be on our most powerful plan because they'll get the biggest discount and we'll make it super attractive for people to be on the an annual plan instead of a monthly
0: plan. and yeah and what's interesting too is then also like tying into that too is was uh, was it also a, f- a, a features um kind of uh rearrangement maybe or or, or... yes huge yeah in and a it's, huge it's, sense. so yeah. in this context i'm curious this is being um uh, you know, the, in terms of like user feedback, you mentioned earlier, and how important that is. Did you guys go? Have you gone through any user uh, feedback testing on that to find out? Oh, yeah, these are the types of things to highlight, and you know, and or anything like that. Any 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 takeaways from that context?
1: Yeah. So I get, that's that has been just like yeah. One thing mm-hmm. just I'll just say now, uh, just so everyone's you know on the same page and has that context is. Uh, You know, like changing. So, Flow's been around for 10 years. We have customers that have been with us an incredibly long time. And we've been for the last year in this massive uh, Mm. moment of just kind of reinvention. Mm -hmm. And so, pricing is one, branding and marketing is another one. Uh, We've spent the last year rebooting the product basically from the ground up. All those things are much, much, much more difficult with customers that are using it. Um, And so, with pricing in particular, the one thing we decided up front is. We weren't going to force any customers to move tiers. We weren't going to do that kind of, I think, pretty shitty exercise of like, yeah, you've enjoyed this at this point for now, but we've decided to change our prices. And so you, get, you either have to move or you have to leave. Uh, we didn't want to do that. And so what we ended up doing was just mapping everybody to the plans in the most generous tier that was closest to their current plan. So all that meant is they paid the same price, they got the same features, but they got moved into one of the new feature bucket tiers, if that makes sense. Like one of those new kind of, Matrixes. Um, because and the thought was just our business like our current customers are much smaller than our potential customers, and we just want to optimize for people that are new to flow. We feel like this is appealing for them, but it's not, some, it's not something that we wanted to ever force somebody to do. so we didn't get much
0: feedback that way yeah that's you know but that's also part of I mean if you've ever experienced that as a user yeah you know with your software, it's like that's happened to me a number of times where I'm like a power user of something or like you know this highest level thing and it's like when this, this thing gets acquired by this company and then they connect, it's like, okay, sweet, I, got, I get it, I get it, Yeah, I'll move on. You know, so it's, a, it, you know, I think everybody appreciates being grandfathered in at a higher price point. Yes. That's another benefit.
1: Yes. If you, and if you message it the right way, and I think that was another exercise is, I, I think uh, a lot of people treat pricing changes as like, I'm going to write a business communication and just let everybody know that this part of, you know, the logistics of how they, of their service is going to change. I don't think that's how you should do it at all. And so we tried to really frame it in a like, here's why we're doing this. Uh, and we also made it super clear at the beginning like, are your, you know, literally our email to customers was the first thing was, is, is your price going to change? Like, are you going to be paying more? No, you're not going to be paying more. You're going to be mapped to the most generous plan. You're going to still be paying the, paying the same. Do you, uh, do you have the opportunity to save money? Absolutely. If you move to one of our new annual plans with higher discounts, you can. And so we tried to frame it in a way that we really just got the story right for customers
0: and i know this is a little out of order because we jumped to this already but i do want to hear how you got to this this sure, this point with sure. flow you know and i think because and this is a natural progression i really wanted to know because you, you brought up that case study. i think and i've talked a lot about pricing in the past on the show and i think it's i'm always fascinated by that but take us a little bit to that leap from then square to sure flow and then with that new direction and what you guys are doing here is like a reboot reset like Maybe some more of those principles, whether I learned from Apple or maybe accrued now from Square and some of that other experience, how you're applying it now to flow.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh yeah, I ended up being at Square for five and a half years, was an incredible experience. But definitely at the end of that, I was ready for a change of pace. And the the I guess the only thing I would say there is it's just really intense. When you're, you know, when you join a startup, especially a startup that's in this like Never ending reorg, growing, changing, everyone's roles changing. There's new people all the time. Like it's, it, it takes a lot. And, uh, and it was also just one of those things that for me, uh, my, you know, one thing I've learned about myself over time is, um, I can become obsessive of stuff that I'm excited about. And I think that has a lot of good effects, but also has a lot of, uh, negative effects if I don't kind of think about it the right way. And so what I mean by that is like for me, when I, uh, got to square, Realized kind of what things were going to be like there. I was just like, "This is amazing! I want to want to work on this all the time. I want to see what I can do with this product and with this company and with this team." Um, and so I was just all about it. And so, you know, five and a half years into that experience, I was super grateful for everything I had learned, but I was ready for a change of pace. And so, after that uh, is when kind of the next chapter for me uh, happened. And so, a couple of things, I started. Um, in investing in early stage uh, startups and early stage companies, I've got a hundred uh, plus of those investments now, in things like Notion and Superhuman and Lyft and uh, a bunch of others. And for me, that was a way of partially taking some of my learnings at, at Square and um, applying that to other, you know, other similar companies. But it was also a way to be super honest of. Um, Yeah. Just scratching that investing and business itch. And for me, the way I've treated investing and advising, because I also advise for individual companies as well as venture capital funds like Designer Fund and Notation Capital and um, Kleiner Perkins and and a few others um, over the years. um, I've always treated that as like being a scientist and you've got a bunch of experiments running in parallel and you get the chance to observe. What are people doing? How are people approaching this problem? What happens when a startup goes through a big growth curve and then starts going, like starts shrinking again and needs to figure out what that next chapter looks like and how they get to that next level? Um, so I started doing that. Um, I started working more individually and one on one with companies. Um, so I worked with companies like Lending Home, doing a big rebranding there after they had failed and spent $100,000 on an agency and basically got nowhere. I went in and worked with the CEO and rebooted that and um, ended up, uh, yeah redoing the identity, the, the product, the website and all of that still is uh, exists today and they're still using that. So I've worked with a few individual companies. Um, I worked at Digit, uh, which does um, kind of automated savings. So it's a, a product that any consumer can sign up for and the, maybe the elevator pitch would be it helps you save small amounts of money that you don't even notice, compiles that into an account. And so, what most kind of customers experienced was they connected their bank account. They're usually people that um, you know are kind of like um, hourly employees. Like every dollar matters. They really want to save, but they don't know where they're going to be able to save. Digit looks for super tiny amounts of money, oftentimes cents, maybe single dollars, moves it into account, and at the end of the month, people suddenly look at their digit account and like, "Wow, I can save! I could save a hundred dollars." So, worked uh, worked with Digit for a little while. And then the, the change for me from um, you know all of that stuff to Flow, uh, was really for a little bit of context. So Flow's been around for ten years. It's a privately held company. Um, it's owned by uh, a company that I think is fascinating. That I love the people behind it called Tiny in uh, in Canada. They own Dribbble, They own MetaLab, They own a bunch of other. They're uh, it's the Berkshire Hathaway of internet companies. And so they're always constantly kind of acquiring. But what I thought was fascinating about that is. Obviously, all the things I just said—I love that experience. But my, uh, all of that was heavily like venture capital weighted. You're always um, kind of trying to build a company with venture capital, and I saw over time that that's got some pros, but it's got a lot of cons with it as well. And I don't think—I—I uh, I, I don't know—I I don't know quite where I net out on what the right way to build a company is. But I definitely got more familiar over time with some of the cons of that. And I've always aspired—if I did build a company to do it privately. And the companies I've always really looked up to are very different from the companies I've worked for. They're companies that have been around for 50, 100 years. They're closely family-run companies that are still held by a lot of the uh, family members. And so that is what I aspire to. And so what I saw at Tiny was, and, and with Flow was this opportunity to uh, go to an environment that was... Uh, it's all private capital. There was none of that pressure and uh, just kind of silliness that sometimes happens with venture capital. You're trying to build a real business. So you have to... Every month, you're living and dying on your revenue. You need to figure out how to grow with, your, with that revenue that you get each month. You need to figure out when you invest it, when you pay it out as a dividend, You know all of those things. I also saw that it was a company that had had a tremendous amount of success over the previous 10 years, but needed a reinvention. And for me, it was the opportunity to... I feel like we all hear so often... All of the successful startup stories. So a lot of the business stories we hear, are, I would say, they're in the first two, three, four, five years of a company. We hear almost nothing of here's a company ten years in, twenty years in that's struggling, that's trying to figure out where to go from here, that has something that's great, but you know, aspires to be able to do more. How do you navigate that? And so for me, it was a chance to go in, uh, use some of my product expertise, use my business expertise, use all the things I've learned over time and help usher in a, a new chapter.
0: And so and and how, for context to how many years now with Flow. So
1: uh, about a year and a half with Flow.
0: Year and a half. Okay. So when you took it kind of ground running then like what were some of the critical things they get in your opinion to kind of get off the ground and how much time did you even take like we'll say to could to the creative side kind of giving yourself space to figure out like next steps and where it goes
1: you know it's a it's a very it's a very different experience so i tried to approach it really thoughtfully just knowing that i i'm walking you know it's it's just very different like in this instance i i'm the outsider joining the company all the team has been there we've had team members that have worked at flow for five years eight years ten we have someone celebrating their 10th year anniversary this year so super long tenured team really really talented smart team um, and so the way I tried to approach it was really just I'm going in. I have some you know outsiders uh some, some like observations, some ideas about where things should head, but let me not be too tied to that and so I just spent the first i don't know three, four months just getting a feel for what was going on, trying to understand like what were uh, you know, uh, people that love Flow, why did they love Flow? People that would leave Flow, why were they leaving Flow? And also just spending time getting... You know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, there's no skill like business because it's always going to be very, very, very different when you actually get into a, a business. That was so true with Flow because, yes, it's a software as a service company. So you can learn about how to grow a good software as a service company. Yes, it's in the productivity space. So you know, I've always been interested in productivity. I've had my own journey of how I've gotten more productive over the years. But you know what I had to spend a lot of time learning is like, and really, what the answer I was trying to get to, and this is a lot of just my, I think, creative process is like, I'm just continuing to. It's like I'm an archaeologist, and I'm like, I know there's a gem there somewhere. I just need to keep digging and keep trying, and I'll eventually find it. And so, what uh, that was the process I was on, and really, what I was trying to get to was a couple of answers, and those were. Uh, what could Flow uniquely be really, really good at, and how could it stand out in what's a very crowded market? Because the productivity space is very crowded. There's lots of competitors, so you're you're vying for, uh, yeah, you're vying for business with a lot of other people. And one of the kind of analogies I've used is, uh, which I think applies to a lot of businesses today, is you know it's like going to the grocery store and seeing the ketchup aisle, and it's like everyone at the end of the day is selling tomatoes that are in ketchup form and yet there's like 30 brands that are there at the ketchup aisle and you know how do you make your decision you're always you have your things that you're looking for you know you have the things that you're attracted to and so the way brands live or die is by differentiation so a lot of time was just like how can we be different what can we be uniquely good at uh, what approach should we take with pricing what approach should we take with the product and so it wasn't like i spent the first 3 or 4 months and had all the answers but i, I came into it with some ideas but being super open minded And super open to how this thing could evolve and change.
0: How do you how do you introduce or or start soliciting the critical feedback that you needed to to kind of get what you to to paint the picture of like the future?
1: The yeah, I kind of separate those things. Like in my mind, I think there's a separate exercise about where just and I think this came a lot from just my time at Apple. And one thing that I think, uh, you know, Apple turns out amazing work. We do, you know, when I was there, and I'm sure they still do this. They they do still. I uh, use user tests but it's very different. They're not using it as a like I've built a product, now I'm going to show it to users and then I'm going to iterate on it constantly with their feedback and my ultimate goal is just to get that feedback to go to zero. And I think that's how a lot of startups approach it is like I had a unique interesting idea that I thought made sense, then I showed it to 100 people, I got 100 different opinions. Now I'm trying to <laughs> coordinate all those and they treat it as if the exercise is to get to no feedback. I don't think that's it at all. And so, in my mind, what I I try to have the two things be somewhat separate. Which is, what are things that clearly aren't working for? for and those can be individual features. Those can be maybe not having certain features. Those can be features features that we have, but they're not flexible. And so we're kind of like uh, in giving you one way to use them or not use them. And um, so I try to you know approach that as like we're always. Uh, we are always listening to feedback. We are always trying to triangulate feedback we get from people. But one thing that I said from day one is I do not want us to become a feedback-driven company. I want us to have a unique idea. I want us to always like, put our heart and soul into it just because I don't think any... No product that I've ever loved has come from an endless amount of user testing and incorporating all that data. It's not that at all. It's someone that is able to have a singular, uh, interesting... Differentiated, well-executed idea, and that does not happen with feedback. And so, I just—I think it's really important, but I try to have those as two separate exercises.
0: What? So, and in, in, with that in mind, then, I and I know there might be like a lot of little things, but like, what, what, what is the right amount of, in, in that regard, like to try to, to try to figure out like what's that thing you could be uniquely good at? There's obviously some team component uh, and then establishment of what the product already is because you're kind of coming into it versus starting straight from scratch. Yeah. And of course, there is the user feedback and. Then that triangulation with where you want to go, especially if it's like, oh, a readjustment to like pricing and to be more premium. Not not saying you guys do that exactly, but you know, if somebody's listening to this, think about like you know the pivot or the adjustment that would have to be made. Sure. What's what's the right then amount um, that you were like this is because like there's obviously the things why people leave and that can always be added. I could I could understand how that could you can filter that into to feet to to improvements of the platform. But 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 striking the gold, I guess, in the first place in the differentiation part. How would you get to that? Yeah, that's
1: not... That's another one of those things where uh, I don't... I, I personally don't think you can get there linearly. And so the way I approached that was again, and we're still in this, but basically what we started um, yeah, about I don't know, 12 months ago now was a reinvention of the product. Where We're basically taking the existing version of Flow and taking a giant step back, not being tied to the way things were executed. And just trying to reimagine it, and uh, and we've we've called that FlowX. It's currently in in beta testing with 600 of our largest customers. We're getting ready to roll that out to all of our customers next month in June, and launch it in uh, in July. And so, you know, that's been moving. But really, the way I treated that was again just this. On, honestly, I think the approach I've gravitated to more over time is approaching it like a scientist. And I know it, sound, it might sound really weird from a coming from someone with the design background, but honestly. Like one thing that I've definitely picked up over time, whether you're a writer or whether you're a designer, is like the best analogy for your creative process is a wastebasket because you're constantly just tossing things out that aren't working, and you're constantly tweaking and playing with, and and really it's almost like this evolutionary process where over time you find what works and you keep it, you discard what doesn't, and so it's constantly changing. But the things you're keeping are just the best, you know, the kind of your best and brightest and most unique ideas, and so. A lot of the things that were gold, I don't think were gold, you know, felt like gold going into it. And in my mind, it was stuff like even just structurally. So the previous version of the app, you know, and it's like none of all this is subjective. I'll just say that right off the bat. So it's not like there's like empirically one better approach. And I think that's one of the challenging parts about design is that uncertainty and how do you figure that out. But the previous version of the product kind of just had a bunch of stuff kind of stuff together that I don't think it made it very intuitive for people from the outside end to look at it and be like, Oh, I understand it. And so one of those things was, we. Ha- what I tried to do is break it down to its atomic elements. And I said, Okay, what are the feature sets? What What are the features that we have? What are the individual features, which are almost like, I don't know, like the spices in a recipe? Then it's like, what are the major pieces of functionality, which are almost like the main ingredients in the dish you're going to make? Um, and then, how can I take these things, kind of separate them out, and then find a better, more forward-looking, more interesting way to put it together? And so, one thing we ended up doing was, re, you know, we quickly realized like we have tasks, we have projects, we have uh, calendars, but we don't, you know, they're hard to find. You kind of have to know where to look to be able to find them. And then the other thing that I saw, and again, this is one of the like great things about coming into a company that's had a lot of uh, kind of success and a longer track record, is there were things that we had tried and killed. And one of those was, uh, you know, not many people know it, but Flow was spun out of MetaLab. MetaLab did all the original design work for Slack. Uh, one thing Flow did really early on was build team messaging. And uh, basically, the story as I know it is uh, the functionality was great, but I think the way that it got introduced and the way that it got marketed just ended up being really unsuccessful because people looked at the product, thought it was a chat product, didn't really want that, wanted a productivity product, were confused and left. But in my mind, what I saw was, oh, this is super cool. Here's something that we could revive, we could pour time and energy into, and we could find a way to bolt this into Flow to make it more of an all-in-one tool. And so some of the changes we made were, structurally, the app now is home where you can see your tasks and your updates, but everything you and your team are working on in Flow Tasks where you can go and find any task. If you're a manager, you can put teammates in the sidebars. You can jump and see what anyone on your team is working on. Do the same thing for teams. Then you have projects. You can see projects that you've pinned. You can see projects by teams, projects that you're in. Calendars is a whole separate thing uh, with all that same functionality I just described, but uh, all in calendar format. And then we have chat. And what we've really tried to do is say, okay, this feels really right because now somebody can look at it. And you know, this is one thing too that, I've come to appreciate over time about the spaces. Um, I think there are very few things like productivity tools in that almost everyone you talk to has a different workflow. You know, primarily like, and I think that's fascinating. It also makes it really, really, really tricky. And so one thing, for instance, and one reason I thought this would make a lot of sense is just talking to our customers. Some people only work in calendar. That's most intuitive to them. They always are thinking in terms of what's my day, what's my week, what's my month. Some people aren't thinking about that at all. Some people just are thinking about like what are my tasks and what is what does it look like today? What does it look like tomorrow? Other people are if they're a project manager or they're an executive they don't care about tasks. they don't really care about calendars, but they care a lot about like how's this project progressing like here's this goal and how are we making progress on it and so I, in my mind it was like let's not try to optimize for that, and that's led us to this approach of we want to have a um, a product that's powerful, but opinionated. So we are going to have powerful features, but everything we do is going is to be opinionated in terms of like, you know, so we added task priority recently, but we did that in a really limited way where tasks can only be low, medium, high, or urgent. You know, we're adding task states, but we're making it, we're being very specific about what sorts of states we add. So you have a task that's incomplete, in progress, uh, completed, or canceled because we found that internally, you know, we have a lot of tasks that, we start work on, then decide that doesn't really make sense. You don't really want to complete them. They, you know, They make more sense canceled. And, um, and so we tried to add those things. But one other big thing is just do it flexibly and not say, if you want to use Flow, great. It's just tasks, it's just calendars. No, we can be good at all of those things because all those things at the end of the day, I think it's, um, it's not like it doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel like a bloated version of the app. It feels like it's the place where your team and your company's tasks. Conversations, files, you know, notes can all live. It's just we allow everybody to use it in the way that's most intuitive to them.
0: Well, I could keep going and ask more questions, but I realize we're we're past our time already. So I appreciate you actually taking this extra few minutes here with us today to kind of elaborate on that. Of course, I want to direct people to Flow, so we're going to reach up to or reach out to find you guys, connect with you, sign up if there's any free trials or whatever. I know you just updated the pricing. What's the best? And I know you just start rolling out some new beta features. So I don't know if people can get in on that, or what's the best way.
1: Yeah. So there's you no. Know, so there's a lot changing. People can find Flow at getflow.com. Um, uh, They can also go to getflow.com slash flow-x and they can be able to look at and sign up to get early access to FlowX, which is what we've been working on for the last year plus. Um, We do have a 30-day free trial. Uh, Anyone can try. No credit card required. Cancel any time. We try to be super generous and make it as easy as possible for people to try us out. Um, And if anyone, I'll just throw it out there. If anyone uh, looks at Flow, has questions, feel free to email me personally at daniel at getflow.com happy to answer questions or help.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches, man. It was a real pleasure. Thanks. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating review. Just go to tomworkis.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you to iTunes where you can leave a five-star rating review. And that really helps spread the word about this podcast. And finally, if you need help growing your online business or generating new traffic leads and sales at a profit, reach out to me at tom at tomworkis.com or head over to the website tomworkis.com and sign up for the free newsletter. That's it for today. Stay frosty.